Thank you very much for praying, uh, Stephen. Well, it's good to be back together, and if you have your Bible, please do open with me to Daniel chapter 11, and I'm going to pick up where Clifford left off and uh, pick up at verse 29 of verse 11, read this, and then we're just going to walk through this fairly complex chapter together. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before, for ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane, profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand. Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder, when they stumble they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done." He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor." He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver, and of all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him." This is God's word. If you're reading that and you don't understand of a lot of it, a lot of it, don't panic. <laughs> we'll work together, we'll break it down, and hopefully by the end we'll go out with something of a clear understanding of what this complex chapter is all about. But I want to begin in this way. I don't know if you've noticed, but we have moved through some very significant cultural changes over the past 10 or 15 years or so here in Northern Ireland. Now, this is a bit of a generalization, but up until fairly recently, it could be said that in some ways, Northern Ireland had preserved the characteristics of a little Christendom. What do I mean by that? Well, think of it, for a long time, up until this past 10 years, most of our laws on ethical matters, they pretty closely reflected the laws of the ethics of Scripture. Our laws in our land on marriage reflected Scripture's laws and teaching on marriage. Our laws on the protection of the unborn reflected Scripture's values of protecting the unborn. Even our laws on trading on a Sunday created space for Sunday worship. In a day gone by, the idea of a marathon closing off the city center so that we can't get to our church to worship would have been unthinkable. 
For a long time, it was still normal to go to church. You weren't weird if you went to church. Or at least it was very normal to send your kids to Sunday school. But today, all that is gone. A tidal wave of secularism has broken over the island of Ireland, starting in the south, and it is now crashing over us here in the north. And the question that we as Christians need to be asking today is this. How are we to stand firm and live faithful lives when the tidal wave of secularism wants to just simply wash us away? Well, this question is what Daniel 11 is in our Bibles to help us with. It's about how we can stand firm as God's people when there is a rising tide of secularism. Last week, in chapter 10 of this book, we learned that it was the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. That's the historical context of this section of the book we're in. In the first year of that king's reign, Cyrus issued a decree that the Israelites could return to their homeland, Israel. They had been living as exiles and refugees out of their land for 70 years. Then they were told they could go back home. And that initial return, as we acknowledged last week, was accompanied with great excitement. We're going home. However, it wasn't long before the initial excitement of the returning exiles faded. Their city, Jerusalem, was in ruins. They had limited resources, and life was still very hard. And so, in chapter 10, verse 2, we read that Daniel had set himself to pray, to fast, to cry out to God so that he could understand just what was going on. He couldn't get it. We thought when we would return to the land, we'd be restored and all would be well. Life would be easy. And so he turns to seek God's face for understanding as to why things are still hard. And... God comes to Daniel to give him spiritual insight in the form of this revelation that spans chapters 10 to 12. The whole of the last three chapters is one package. The revelation is summarized in chapter 10, verse 1, where it's spoken of as a great conflict. And last week, we worked down through chapter 10 and saw that it's an introduction to the vision that Daniel is to receive to prepare him so that he can properly understand it. It's about the spiritual nature of the battle to remain faithful in a fallen world. That's what chapter 10 was all about. It was simply an introduction to the vision that Daniel was about to receive. Well, now in coming to chapter 11, we come to the contents of of the vision itself. The angelic messenger whom we met in chapter 10 now gives a detailed walkthrough of some of the turbulent historical events that are ahead for Daniel and his people. The detail of the historical events that are to come is striking, and if we're a bit honest, hard to track with. I'm sure when Clifford was reading those verses and I was reading those verses, you were probably thinking, what is that all about? That's the sort of thing I'd put on my audio Bible to help me fall asleep at night to. It's very hard to follow. Let's acknowledge that. But when you come to any complex, dense passage of Scripture like this, it's always good to step back and keep at the forefront of your mind what's the purpose of this or try to identify In all of the trees of detail, we step back and look at the forest. What's the purpose? And that's what we're going to try to do now as we analyze and study this chapter together. You see, the vision is given for two clear reasons. There are two purposes for this everything that's contained in this vision. First, 
We know that this vision is given to Daniel to give him understanding. We could say it is to hit the reset button of his expectations. Remember, he's praying and he's saying, Lord, I don't understand why we're still going through difficulties now that we're back in the land. And so this is God saying, let me help you understand, Daniel. It's like God is saying, as long as you're in this fallen world, there will be tribulation, there will be challenges. Of course, there will be lovely times of rest too, but most of your life is going to be marked by challenges as you try to walk with God and be faithful. Rest will come, but only when the fullness of my kingdom comes. That's what God is saying. So this vision, the, one of the main purposes is it's here to, to set Daniel's expectations. Here's what you should expect as you try to be faithful in the world. But second, it is to give Daniel and his people instruction on how you can stand firm and be faithful even when life's hard. This is instruction on how you can be faithful just where God has placed you, even when there's tribulation and instability all around you. And let's remember, as we keep these two purposes in view, this is given to set expectations, and it's given to instruct us on how to stand firm in a difficult world. Let's remember, this is not just written for Daniel and the people of Daniel back then. This is in Scripture for us now. So though this is complex, though this is difficult, and though in my exposition I was tempted to skip over this chapter, there is so much here for us. So we're going to make those two purposes for the vision being given our headings as we try and get our head around this complex chapter. So if you're taking notes, here's kind of our first big heading that we're going to use to, to try and break this down and understand it. Heading one, what to expect as you seek to be faithful in a fallen world. And the first thing we should expect is this. You should expect ongoing political instability in the background as you strive to live faithfully for the Lord. Now, if anyone gets this reality, it is us in Northern Ireland. You should expect in your Christian life today political instability to be the backdrop as you try to be faithful as a Christian. The angel whom we met in chapter 10 begins explaining to Daniel this future conflict in verse 2 of chapter 11. Look at what he goes on to say. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be greater than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Now, this is information that the angel is giving to Daniel. Here's what's going to happen next in history. But for us, we're at another vantage point. We can actually look back and see how did some of this actually play out in history. And we know how this played out in history. We know that in the Persian Empire, that was the powerful empire reigning in Daniel's day at this point, there were four more kings after the present king that we read about in chapter 10, verse 1. The fourth king we actually meet in Scripture in the book of Esther. His name was Xerxes. He is the king who ditched his feminist wife Vashti to marry Esther. We know that Xerxes ruled at the pinnacle of the Persian Empire. He was so confident in his strength that he even attempted to invade the rising Greek Empire. But he suffered defeat at the Battle of Salamis in 480 BC. You can Google it and read all the history if you want to. So three more kings would arise in Persia. Then a fourth would be richer and he would be stirred up against Greece. We know that this all happened. Then look at verse 3. The angel continues. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. 
And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity. Again, we know at our vantage point how this all came to pass. The great king, the great Greek king was Alexander the Great. He overthrew the Persian Empire with great swiftness, and his empire expanded to become the most expansive empire that the world had known. But then he died suddenly when he was only 32 years old in the year 323 BC, and his empire was broken into four different territories under four different leaders. Out of those four kingdoms that were established after the fall of the Greek Empire, two rose to a place of prominence. We call them the Northern Kingdom, the Seleucid Kingdom, and the Southern Kingdom, the Ptolemaic Kingdom. And what was at the center of the compass of the struggle of -of tug-of-war between the Northern Seleucids and the Southern Ptolemies? Israel. And so in verses 5 to 20... The angel unpacks the battle for supremacy that would go on back and forward between the northern kings and the southern kings and again gives us striking detail. For example, verse 5, the king of the south, we learn, will be strong and will reign. Then verse 6, the king of the south will try to make an alliance with the king of the north, but it would all come to nothing. Again, It's fascinating to read the history behind this. We know, again, that the southern king's daughter was named Bernice. She was sent to be married to the king of the north, a man called Antiochus II, around 250 BC. The problem was, Antiochus II, he was already married to a woman called Laodice. And Laodice didn't like this new wife, Bernice. And so so she poisoned her. And you can read of the plot and the conspiracy. Again, just Google it and you'll find it all. Now, what do we do at this point? Do I just keep going through all the historical detail and talking you through how this all came to pass in history? Well, as fun as that would be for me, perhaps not for you, um, we'd be here all day and our heads would be spinning by the end of it. So let's just summarize. That's what happens in the rest of these verses But what we're to see is an ongoing political struggle for power and dominance that God's people will be caught in between. Just to skim through a little bit, in verse 10, we read the sons of the kings will wage war. This is going to go on from generation to generation. In verses 11 and 12, we learn that these conflicts will be characterized by aggression and arrogance. Verse 13, power will shift back and forward between the two groups, and on and on it goes. These verses depict a series of conspiracies, lies, betrayal, pride, greed, ruthlessness, and the never-ending tidal shifts of power and influence. You could say it demonstrates a political landscape always shifting but never at rest. How relevant is that to us in Northern Ireland? You're going to live your Christian life in the midst of political restlessness. Power's going to shift from north to south, from north to south, from this party to that party. And you as Christians are going to be caught up in the middle of it all just trying to be faithful. God was saying, Daniel, this is what you should expect. A backdrop of political unrest. And this is what Jesus said in the New Testament to his church as well. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, as you live in the world, you should expect to see nation rising against nation, ongoing tribulation, political turbulence, and unrest. Just think about this. I was thinking about this through the week. Remember in the midst of COVID, that horrible time, the narrative was, you know, when we get the vaccine and When we get everything sorted, life will be good again. And think of everything that's happened since we've seen something of COVID subside. Did we see that after that we'd be thrown right into the depths of the Brexit protocol dispute? Did we see that afterwards 
Russia would invade Ukraine and the cost of living would soar. And we thought, whenever this passes, everyone will be good again. And I'm sure anyone here who's older can look back and see the shifts, the, the continual political instability, and the church's call to be faithful in the midst of that backdrop. There's so much that's out of control, but what helps us in these moments? Well, the implicit message that this chapter proclaims so clearly is so helpful, and that is simply this. Our God knows the end from the beginning. That's what the detail is to communicate to us. God knows the details of history. He knows the details of what's going to happen before these things happen. I find this so reassuring. If you look back at chapter 10, verse 21, the angel says to Daniel, but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. And you think of the psalm that says all the, Psalm 103, isn't it? No, 139. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before there was one of them. All the days ordained for us written in God's book before they come to pass. And God can read the end and he can read the beginning all at once. And that's supposed to reassure us because in all the political shifts of our time, we have one rock of stability. And that is our Lord, our God, who knows the end from the beginning. We don't have to panic. Kingdoms will rise. Kingdoms will fall. His kingdom will never fall. And we rest there. So Daniel, my people, you're struggling to know what's going on in this chaotic world. This chaotic world is what you should expect. And we'll look in a while at why that is. It's been subjected to futility because of the fall. But very quick, I'm going to be as quick as I can here because there's a whole lot more text to work through. What's the second thing you should expect as you seek to be faithful in the world? Well, here's the second thing we should expect. Expect specific pressures that will come upon you as Christians that are designed to make you abandon your faith. Back in chapter 8, we read that after some years, a king would arise out of the northern kingdom who would be a terrible persecutor of God's people. Remember in chapter 8, he was depicted in the apocalyptic vision that Daniel had as a little horn who would rise up from the four horns? We'll hear from verse 21 to 45, right to the end of the chapter, all attention turns to this same figure. The angel tells Daniel in verse 21 that a contemptible person will arise and will obtain his position as ruler by flatteries. Now we dealt with this king to come in real detail back when I dealt with chapter 8. So we're going to summarize this section fairly briefly. You'll be glad to hear. This is a king who will rise, who will persecute God's people. In verses 22 to 24, we're given a summary of his reign including his military success and gains. In verses 25 to 31, we are told the objects of his hostility, the kings of the south, but especially God's covenant people. Verse 30, he shall take action against the holy covenant. Verse 31, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple, take away the burnt offering, set up the abomination of desolation. He will seduce with flattery God's people, will lead them to violating the covenant and compromising their convictions. Then in verses 36 to 45, we're told of his arrogance, that he would exalt himself above God. Now we know again at this vantage point of history that all of this was fulfilled in a man named Antiochus IV. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, God manifest. He came to power in 175 BC and for various reasons developed an absolute hatred of God and his people. He sacked Jerusalem, enforced a paganization program designed to corrupt and decimate every part of Israel's faith and practice. Now once again, Daniel wouldn't have known the details that we can understand now what he would have learned that there would be in times of increasing difficulty, 
for God's people, that at times that difficulty would find expression in governments or leaders who would make life very hard for God's people. And in the New Testament, we learn that what Daniel saw stands as a pattern that we should expect to see repeated through history. Jesus warned in Matthew 24 that false teachers would rise in our day and attempt to lead many Christians astray. Paul speaks of an end-time ruler, sometimes referred to as the Antichrist in Scripture. Paul referred to him in 2 Thessalonians 2.4 as a man of lawlessness who would arise, who would oppose and exalt himself against God and his people. Jesus said in John 16.1 when he spoke of the things that would happen before he returned, he said, I've told you all these things to keep you from falling away. So when we see this historical overview that was given to Daniel and how Jesus applied it in the New Testament and said, in the church you've got to be ready for difficult days that will reach perhaps some kind of climax in in a ruler who's particularly opposed to God's people, an end time of difficulty and persecution. What did Jesus say? He said, in those days you've got to be on your guard. And that's what I just want to apply here before we now then move into looking at how we stand firm in this fallen world. Think about it. Today, we must be on guard as Christians because there is so much that is designed in our world to seduce us and lead us away from faithfulness to God and faithfulness to his word. There are both subtle and not-so-subtle pressures on us as Christians today designed to erode quietly our faith and our faithfulness. And we should expect these pressures to increase. Beware the overt attacks on the authority of Scripture that are veiled as popular social justice issues. Beware outright attacks on the authority of truth. Beware outright attacks on the authority of Scripture and the uniqueness of Christ. But also, beware the much more subtle, erosive forces that seek to eat away your faith. Beware the seducing effects of the world. Affluence, material comforts. Satan will sing the church to sleep with a full stomach, a TV on, and feet up on a couch. A superficial gospel is a curse in our age. And what God is giving to Daniel and his people then and to us here now, is understanding, insight. Know what to expect. Understand. Over this past week, there have been subtle, erosive messages to try and eat away your faith. Sure, science has disproved that whole thing. Truth is relative. That's your truth as Christians, but we know those Muslims over there, they have their truth, and those Hindus, they have their truth, and if someone wants to think that way, well, just live and let live. God is telling Daniel, as we have seen already in this book, and he's telling us, you're going to have to plod through a long stretch of this stuff we call history as you await the fullness of of the coming kingdom. And your job is to live a faithful, kingdom-shaped life with all that stuff roaring on in the background. You can't control all the shifts of political instability in Northern Ireland. But your call is not to control all of that. It's to leave it with God. You be faithful just where God has placed you. And so the question is, how do we do that? And that's where I want us to turn now, having seen something of this walkthrough of history 
to calibrate our expectations, now we come to this beautiful section of our passage from verse 32 down to 35, where we learn how we can stand firm and be faithful in a fallen world. You've noticed probably that I jumped over those verses, and I did that because I wanted to save them for now and end on this note. We are given a little treasure in these verses, 32 to 35, instruction on how we can stand firm and be faithful in a fallen world. Look at verse 32. After reading of some who are seduced and who fall away and violate the covenant, we read, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Now this is brilliant. And here's the main thing that I want to say to you this morning. Make it your goal, as long as you have breath, to be this person whom verse 32 describes. One who in all the shifts of political instability and in the midst of all the tribulation that comes in this world, all the ups and downs, you make it your goal to be this kind of person, one who knows their God and who stands firm. That's what we want to be. How do we do that? Well, the passage tells us three ways we can become this kind of person. Number one, get to know God. It is the people who know their God who will stand firm. Now, this isn't just speaking about knowing things about God. This speaks of the people who know God intimately, those who have a real and deep communion with God. In Jeremiah 9, 23, we read these words from the Lord. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. J.I. Packer has so helpfully said in knowing God, what were we made for? To know God. What should be our highest aim in life? To know God. What is the best thing in life bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. Do you want to be someone who stands firm as the tidal wave smashes over Northern Ireland, the tidal wave of secularism. Well, don't make it your goal to be strong. First, make it your goal to know God. And from that knowledge of God will come strength. And that is so, so helpful. Because any of us can do that. How do we get to know God? Through communion with him in prayer. Communion with him in Bible reading. Communion with him in church. You make knowing God your priority. And God has said, those who know their God shall stand firm. You know, I hear that and I'm like, I, I just think of water running down a slanted slope and me slipping back. I don't want to slip back and slip back and fall into the sea. I want to be one of those who know God as this rope that is anchored in God and I know God and I'm standing firm and it's not even my grip that counts, it's his grip on me. So you want to stand firm when the tidal wave of secularism crashes over Northern Ireland? Get to know God. Second thing we must do, be active for the kingdom. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Remember also, this is not just an angelic word to Daniel. This is God's living and active inspired word. This is God's word on how you stand firm. We get to know God and we seek to be active for the kingdom. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. We saw last week that we are not called to be passive observers of the spiritual battle that wages on in history. We're not called to hide away or car in fear. We're not called to bear physical arms and go and wage holy wars. Our weapons that we fight with are spiritual. We wage a spiritual warfare by prayer, 
We saw that last week, how significant prayer is as we live in the world. And Jesus said this in Luke 21, 36. He said, stay awake at all times and pray that you'd have strength to stand. He was speaking of the end times, those last days in the church when times are difficult. So make prayer a priority if you want to be a standing firm Christian in this day. Pray for God's kingdom to come more fully in your own life. Pray for it to come in the lives of your friends, family members, colleagues. Make prayer a priority. But secondly, let's seek to communicate something of the hope that we have around us. Look at verse 33. And the wise among the people will make many understand. That is a beautiful picture of evangelism. Make people understand what? Make people understand the futility of human history apart from God and the hope that the gospel of the kingdom brings to the table. You know, the whole of this chapter calls to our attention in a subtle but very real way the utter futility or frustration experienced in human history without God. It's kind of like Daniel's equivalent or his take on the book of Ecclesiastes. Did you notice the continual note of frustration experienced by all those vying for power in the verses? Verse 4, you read of one who will rise, but his kingdom shall be broken and divided. Verse 6, in that alliance of Bernice, she will not hold on to her strength. Verse 12, he shall not remain strong. Verse 14, many shall lift themselves up, but they will fail. Verse 17, his strength shall not stand. Verse 19, he shall stumble and fall. Verse 20, within a few days he shall be broken. Right through to verse 45, he shall come to his end with none to help him. This walkthrough of history is very intentionally designed to make us walk away and say, look at the utter futility of it all. What do these politicians gain from all their labor at which they toil under the sun? Politicians come and politicians go and the earth remains forever. You could read Ecclesiastes into these verses and the futility that is in them. But why is that futility there? If you're reading these verses, and go, but why does God allow all of that to go on? Well, we're told very clearly in the New Testament, God has subjected the world to futility as actually part of his judgment in time because of our rebellion against him. The futility that the world experiences in a fallen world is actually an expression of God's judgment in the world. His wrath being displayed in a world that has turned away from him. He has subjected the world to futility. It's difficult. And we are called to make people understand. Help people see through the show and the sham of the human pursuit of power and stability apart from God. And then we direct them to the one solid hope that there is in the kingdom of God. A hope founded on Christ, our solid rock, our cornerstone. The one of whom we have read in the book of Daniel over and over again, whose kingdom will never end. So you want to be faithful and you want to stand, get to know God, but Be an activist for the kingdom. Keep praying. Keep being salt and light right where God has placed you, in your family, in your workplace. Keep being the presence of the kingdom to come right now. Because you're in your workplace to be salt and light. To be the presence of the kingdom. To make people understand what is really true about history. Well then, thirdly and finally, if we're going to stand firm, we need to know God, we need to be active, and we need to keep trusting God's good purposes in the tribulations we pass through. We are not immune to the difficulties of life in a fallen world. Verse 35, we read, some of the wise shall stumble. That is, struggle under the weight of tribulations that can be part of this world. But look at the purpose clause in verse 35. They'll stumble, they'll go through those tribulations. Why? So that they may be refined, purified, 
and made white until the time of the end. Here is one of the one of the most lovely things about being a Christian. God has not just redeemed our souls, he has redeemed our trials. What do I mean by that? The trials of this fallen, futile world that we are not immune from now serve God's good purposes in our lives. Trials that would be otherwise just pain and meaninglessness. God says, I'm going to order all your trials and I'm actually going to make the hard stuff serve your good. That gives us hope in grief. It gives us hope in darkness, in sickness, in weakness, in pain. God says, I'm going to take all the strands of this futile and fallen world and all the stuff that's ordained for you, I'm going to work through it so that it actually works to refine you, purify you, and make you white right up until the time of the end. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to purify you. I'm going to preserve you. And all that hard stuff, it's going to be like, you know, rough stuff that I'm going to rub up against you, but it's going to shine you up and make you beautiful like Christ. Romans 8, 28 is our anchor. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Imagine if God had not redeemed your trials. Imagine if, if you just said, trials, that's just meaningless stuff. You've got to survive. Where God actually says, no, I've redeemed your trials, and I'm going to work in them so that there's meaning and purpose. Does that not at least offer your heart some hope that at least even in this there's meaning? God's going to do something good in this. Perhaps that's your only light in the darkness. A light you just receive by faith even when you don't feel it. God refines us, he purifies us, and he grows our faith muscles in the times when they're most stretched. I've had this picture in my mind this week as I've been preparing this. A couple of weird things that I'll close with. Limpets. You know those little limpets that stick onto the rock? And when we're going crab fishing up on the north coast, you, I don't know if this is right or not, but you bash them off of the stone quickly because if you knock them even a wee bit, what do they do? They stick really tight to the rock. And that picture's been in my mind thinking, you know, when the waves of tribulations crash on us, our job is just stick to the rock that is Christ. Get tight to the rock, and he'll hold me fast. In James chapter 112, we read, Blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. You see, we're little limpets with incredible hope. We're little limpets with incredible hope. God says when you've stood the test, when you've gone through the tribulation of the world. There's a crown of life that God has promised for you. So, when the tidal wave crashes over us, Daniel 11, and the teaching of the whole Bible, especially articulated clearly by Jesus in the New Testament, it's here to say, you can stand. And we can stand because of Jesus. What brought every kingdom to an end in Daniel chapter 11? Death. Does death bring the kingdom of Christ to an end? Did death bring Jesus Christ and his reign to an end? No. It's glorious. No. Death tried to end his kingdom. Satan and the kingdom of darkness tried to crush the son, but death could not handle him. He broke the shackles of death because his kingdom cannot ever be ended by death. And because Jesus stands in resurrection glory with a power that can never be broken, we can stand in him and never be broken. You know, I said I've had a weird few images in my mind. Maybe me reading Daniel a bit too much lately. Been dreaming about it. But here's a thought that I'll just close with. 
because there's been so much heavy stuff here, here's something that I hope will add a little bit of lightness to the moment, but hopefully something that will also encourage your heart. Here's the story that's been in my mind as I've been just coming to an end of the book of Daniel. It's the story of the three little pigs. Now, why has that been in my mind? Well, I've been thinking, the wolf in that story says, I'm going to huff, and I'm going to puff, and I'm going to blow your house down. And the house that was made of straw, what happened? It fell down. And the house that was made of sticks, what happened? It fell down. But when those three wee piggies hid in the house that was made of stone, the wolf huffed, and he puffed, and he blew with all his might. But what happened? The house stood firm. Daniel 11 is an account of the huffing and puffing of the wolf through history. Where do the saints find refuge? In the solid rock house that is Christ. And let the world huff and puff and do its worst. But God's house will never fall. And that is our hope until the end. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. This world and all its turbulence can sometimes feel so intimidating. The trials that are very personal in our lives can feel overwhelming. But how significant In this chapter, we see you know all the details. And you've said, but those who know their God will stand firm. And Jesus said, here's how you know God. You come to me. And in Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So, Father, today we thank you for the solid rock you've given under our feet that is your Son. Thank you for his glorious death and resurrection. And because he lives, your house will never fall. And in him, we're like the little limpets, like the little piggies. We just hide in him. And the wolf can huff and puff all he wants. But thank you that we're safe. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to respond with this wonderful hymn, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me.
And now may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.